When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The human zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio as Boris Johnson prepares for a pretty pointless meeting with Angela Merkel today in Berlin after being told yesterday in no uncertain terms by Donald Tusk that the backstop stays and it can never be removed from the withdrawal agreement. The best Boris can expect is for the German Chancellor to do a lot of nodding and smiling when he tells her that Parliament cannot stop a no-deal Brexit. After that, he's going to have some even more pointless conversations with French President Emmanuel Macron tomorrow. We'll be having a very meaningful conversation instead here uh, in Talk Radio Towers with Brexit Party MEP Lance Foreman, who's going to tell us how concerned he is about the rest of the withdrawal agreement and how I believe, and probably so does he, that the whole thing needs to be scrapped. And, of course, we want to have even more meaningful conversations with all of you as well. 0344 499 We'll keep an eye on what's going on in China. The Chinese Foreign Ministry saying uh, that they have detained uh, a British consulate employee in Shenzhen uh, instead of sending him back to Hong Kong. We'll keep you uh, across all of that and let you know precisely what happens when it happens. Coming up, we're also asking at what point Prince Andrew will be questioned by officials in the United States of America or indeed even the police about what he did and when he did it with Jeffrey Epstein. The papers this morning are full of more lurid allegations about sex slaves, private jets and very, very dodgy sounding parties. And on that subject, we'll bring you more details of the carbon offset nonsense still enveloping Harry and Meghan after their trip to see to Nice to see uh, Uncle Elton John. 0344 499 Also later on, we'll be asking you just what old gadgets you've still got in those drawers at home. Apparently, there are 40 million old phones, old pages and old laptops languishing in homes all over the country. Tell us what you've got hanging around uh, and uh, we'll be very, very glad to hear from you. You can tweet us, of course, at Talk Radio. You can text us as well at 8722. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So basically, here is the scenario. Boris Johnson has been told that there is no chance of reopening the withdrawal agreement. Boris Johnson has also been told by the EU that there is absolutely no point in asking for the backstop to be removed out of the withdrawal agreement because that isn't going to happen. He's also been told uh, that clearly he's not serious about 
getting another deal or a better deal or a different deal with the European Union uh, and the European Union, I'm pretty sure, are convinced that he's heading for a no-deal Brexit. Everybody seems to be preparing for it. He's already telling them that basically Parliament cannot stop a no-deal Brexit. Let's talk to Lance Foreman, Brexit Party MEP for London, a uh, man we've spoken to many times on this show before uh, because he's got some misgivings, which he's been talking about uh, on social media, around the withdrawal agreement, not just about the backstop, but about many other things as well. We touched upon some of them yesterday. Uh, let's go back there today. Lance, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Very good morning to you. Thanks very much indeed. I mean, I'm saying it's a bit of a pointless journey, this, that uh, Boris Johnson's making. James Max, who just did the breakfast show, was saying to me, well, he's basically making out that he's trying to do something and then at the end of it, he'll turn around and say, yeah, well, look, I did try and talk to them and they just kind of rebuffed me and didn't give me anywhere to go. So now we have to leave without a deal. Uh, well, that could be his strategy. Um, my, my severe concern about that strategy is they might call his bluff and say, OK, we'll sign the withdrawal agreement and we'll drop the backstop. Because uh, the backstop is a hoax anyway, um, because if there is no deal, no one's going to build a border. So, you know, th th they could actually give that very easily. The problem is the rest of the agreement is absolutely dire. Everyone's been focusing on the backstop because obviously with the backstop, it's not Brexit at all. But even if you drop the backstop, the agreement is terrible. It is Brexit, but mm. it hands tons and tons of power to the EU in many different areas. Well, I saw a conversation you were having uh, last night and a little bit this morning as well on Twitter with Danny Finkelstein uh, from The Times about the, the European Court of Justice and, and where all that sits in the withdrawal agreement. Tell us about that. Well, so under the political declaration in, um, in um, paragraph uh, 134 and 135, we actually hand over final arbitration and even the ability... To, to face penalties handed to the European Court of Justice. So, for example, um, say we decide as a country we want to be more competitive, we want to follow what the Americans do have done and drop our corporation tax to 10%, below the Irish level, let's say. Right. The EU could come back and say, hang on a second, that's uncompetitive, that's not in alignment with the political declaration, we're going to take this to the European Court. The European Court could then rule, no, Britain cannot drop its corporation tax, and it could actually impose penalties on us, financial penalties on us. This is ridiculous. In, if you ever find an agreement with anybody, you never have the other party being the arbitrator. There's always an independent arbitrator. No international agreement has ever been drawn up like this. We're handing over all the arbitration to the EU. In fact, it has been done twice with the EU. They've done it with Ukraine and Moldova. And pop, I think maybe Slovenia as well. But for Britain to sign up to this is absolutely preposterous. I mean, That's is it, one it, area. I was going to say, is it tantamount to sort of getting a divorce from somebody and then having your ex-wife dictate who you're allowed to marry next? Well, it, yeah, it, it, exactly. It's exactly like that. It's the same with fishing. You know, we, yes, we're coming out of the European uh, the Common Fisheries Policy, but the political declaration says that there is still possibilities for them to have quotas within, um, you know, within our fishing waters and so on. So, again, if we decide that we don't think that what's being agreed is fair, they can again take us to the European Court. The European Court can rule in their favour. And we haven't got a leg to stand on. And if we don't agree it, they can, you know, they can penalise us. And we can't get out of this agreement either. This treaty 
Unusually, again, any normal treaty has an escape clause at the end. If both parties, you know, don't agree, you can walk away from it. There's a termination clause. There's nothing in that at all. We are totally fixed with this thing. It is an absolute disaster. We should never be signing it. And your fear, I suppose, at this point is that they will somehow move on the, uh, on the backstop at the final hour uh, and we will then be forced to sort of accept the agreement without the backstop but with all of this other stuff still in it. Absolutely, because the, the backstop, as we know, is it's 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 a you know, at the end of the day, they don't really want um, Brexit to happen at all, but they know that, and that they also don't want no deal to happen. So they would rather have an agreement with us, and they know the backstop costs them nothing at all. It doesn't actually cost them anything to have to get rid of the backstop. So they can always drop it at the very last minute if they think that's going to stop no deal. And that is my worry that we end up with this appalling deal um, minus the backstop. What you have to do, what Boris should be doing, is actually scrapping the whole thing and looking at this, you know, uh, holistically. What are we trying to achieve here? All we're trying to do is leave the EU, but have a free trade deal with the EU. And in fact, the political declaration talks principally about, you know, having a free trade deal and frictionless borders with the EU. So it's beneficial to both sides. All we need to do is agree, it can be done on the hour before, you know, 11pm uh, on the 31st of October. All we need to do, both parties need to do, is agree that we want a free trade deal. If we both agree that we will have discussions for a free trade deal going forward, we can basically impose Article 24 of the WTO agreement, which allows us to continue trading with the EU and the EU to continue trading with us exactly in the same way as we are now. There's no tariff. There's no checks at the borders. We just carry on as we are now. And that can, you know, that can carry on for 10 years. Right. And quite sensibly as well, yeah. we want to be able to control the terms of any agreement that we enter into rather than be controlled by them, which is what we have been uh, for the best part of the last 40-odd years or whatever well, it is. But the I thing is... I we want to control it. I mean, you know, both parties should control their bit, but we certainly shouldn't be controlled by them. Right. Well, I mean, what I'm saying is we want to control the terms by which we wish to enter an agreement with them. Yes, we do not wish for them to be able to, uh, in some way, influence our uh, uh, situation. I mean, they can pull out of any agreement that they want to if they wish. We don't mind that. But my worry as well is, uh, Lance, that according to Danny Finkelstein, and you'll have read his answers to you, um, he says you're misinterpreting this uh, European Court of Justice ruling. And basically he says it's about agreeing that where interpretation of EU law is required, that is a matter for the European European Court of Justice. What do you think he means by that? Look, he, he's not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Um, you know, um, this has been looked at by lawyers, um, and it is very clear that the supreme um, power sits with the EU, with the European Court. Um, it, it, it's very clear. They, they, hold, they basically hold all the cards in any negotiation, both in terms of arbitration and also penalties as well. They can impose penalties if the European Court feels that um, we are not, you know, we're not agreeing in line with the European Court's decision. Right. So, it, you know, all, all the power sits with them. We, sh you know, we should be ditching this agreement. We should be moving forward with the free trade agreement. And look, the EU do want £39 billion out of us too. Maybe we should pay them something, just as a goodwill payment, because we're leaving, they don't like us leaving. I don't, ha I don't have an objection to that, paying them something, but to move forward positively together with a free trade deal. You know, that, that, that seems to me the most sensible way forward for both parties. Boris says today, and he's going to tell Angela Merkel this, that Parliament cannot stop a no-deal Brexit. He thinks that one of the reasons that they're still not really moving and not really budging is because they believe that Parliament can stop a no-deal Brexit. What's your view of that? 
Well, I don't think Parliament can stop a no-deal Brexit. Yes, we can have a vote of no confidence. Yes, an election can be called. But all of that would happen after the 31st of October, by which time we would have already left with a no-deal. So maybe they don't fully understand how Parliament works. Or maybe they're still hoping that they'll, you know, that something will happen in Parliament which will, which will prevent it. They are, they are desperately hoping that Brexit doesn't happen. They're, they're, they're trying to make us sweat at the moment. And to be honest, I don't think we should be sweating. We should, you know, if I was Boris, I actually wouldn't be going over there at all. I'd be saying to them that we're leaving with no deal, but we'd be very happy to do a free trade deal. If you want to do one, come and see us. You know where we are. 10 Downing Street. My door's always open. That's what I would be saying. I wouldn't be going with a, you know, begging bowls that are trying to uh, trying to negotiate. No, so, and I don't think, yeah. and I don't think he is doing that. And I think that's what people who want to see Brexit happening are quite encouraged by, because certainly from my perspective, it feels as though there's been a bit of a sea change, certainly in the attitude of our government towards leaving the European Union. Boris Johnson yeah. uh, and Dominic yeah. Cummings have been far more positive about doing things and making things happen. And although the naysayers will go, oh yeah, but nothing's actually happened yet. Well, the change in attitude is huge, I think. And the change in, in direction, the change in strategy, um, you know, and there is now a much firmer belief that we are leaving the European Union, which I never believed we would under Theresa May. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, what we really should have been doing for the last three years is preparing for no deal. Um, because, A, if we leave a no deal, we want to be fully prepared. But also, if we are fully prepared, it actually does enhance our hand in, the, in any negotiation. The, as I say, the EU don't want no deal. They also do want this money out of us. And that, in fact, that's another problem with the withdrawal agreement. Because if that withdrawal agreement, you know, if that transition period continues, it's not 39 billion. We have to keep paying them. So the longer we're negotiating, we have to keep paying more and more and more. It is ridiculous. You know, this whole withdrawal agreement should just be scrapped. We shouldn't be talking about it anymore. We should just be talking about either leaving with no deal or leaving and moving forward with a new free trade deal between the EU and the UK. And how worried would you be if we left with no deal about what would happen on November the 1st? This is a question an awful lot of people are asking at the moment is when we do leave, if we leave with no deal on the 31st of October, Friday, which I've declared should become a national holiday. I'm sure you'd support me in that. Uh, so so, yeah. so hopefully most people or most businesses would not be daft enough to suddenly start trying to do loads of business with Europe on the, on the, on the Friday, November the 1st. You wouldn't necessarily necessarily have loads of haulage companies lining up to tra travel to Calais on that particular day. But what would it look like for business on Friday, November the 1st, Lance? Well, look, we, you know, in my own business, we export all over the world. Yeah. When we export to a new market, um, right, the very first time we export, it's always a little bit more complicated because you've got a new form to fill in. You've got to work out how to do it. You might ship your goods. It goes through the customs. They raise a few questions. There's a bit of a glitch. But you never get it wrong second time. Yeah. And, and that's the thing here. You know, we are making a one-off change. There might be a few glitches along the way, but it's not the end of the world. And in fact, it doesn't affect most businesses. 99% of businesses, even, or 92%, I should say, of businesses in the UK have no dealings with the EU at all. So the vast, vast majority of our economy will just carry on as normal. It's just some of those export businesses, and it'll be the freight companies that will have to deal with the logistics. They, you know, the profit motive is a very, very strong incentive not to get things wrong continually. They will get it right. Most of the world does not have a trade deal with the EU. Most of the world is not in the single market. America's not in the single market or the customs union. And they actually do more trade with the EU than we do. You know, how do they get their products across the border? Of course they do. And of course we will do. 
And Calais has said they're not going to delay things. And why would we delay imports here? Why would we stop medicines coming into our own country? It's ridiculous. I don't even know why people are suggesting it. It's completely balmy. It is completely balmy. I'll tell you what else is completely balmy. I know some of your fellow MEPs from the Lib Dem party in particular seem to have gone completely crazy. Uh, we were talking about one yesterday, or Monday rather, who put a tweet out over the weekend calling all Brexiteers cowards. Uh, there's a woman uh, called Irina von Weiss, MEP, uh, who's right. from the Lib Dems, who says this, Brexit will kill people. I am not being figurative. Brexit will kill British citizens due to lack of medicine, materials and overstretched infrastructure. I mean, you know, talk about sort of derangement syndrome. It's really getting, it's really taking hold, this madness, isn't it? It, it, it is. And, and, you know, it's, I actually did respond to that tweet. And what I was saying is that, you know, at the moment, we have a lot of teenagers and young people in this country that are very, very stressed about all sorts of issues. They're being told the world's going to end in 10 years because of climate change. And it's talk like this, you know, when, you know, telling people they're going to die because of Brexit, you know, it puts stresses on people that are totally unnecessary. It is totally and utterly ridiculous. This is just a logistics issue that will be dealt with because... We trade with countries all over the world that we don't have trade deals with, you know, and, and goods get through the system without too many, you know, too many issues. Well, exactly um, right. I really, mean, and, and the, EU, the EU doesn't want issues either. They, they want it all to be pretty frictionless. You know, they're still buying, you know, they're selling, they're selling many more products into us than we are to them. So they want it to go smoothly. So it will go smoothly. Common sense and... Uh, always prevailed in the end. And also, I mean, there's been figures, I think, in, the, in this week alone saying that EU exports are down, but British exports are actually up. And uh, the news that more than something like £711 million worth of UK beef, lamb and pork products was shipped around the world in the first six months of the year, 8% more than last year, and almost half of those shipments went to non-EU third country markets. I mean, you're in the food business, the smoked salmon business, Lance. I mean, presumably you ship a lot of stuff all over the world. Well, we do, and this is often what I say to Remainers. You know, in, in business, you tend to focus on areas that are growing. You don't focus on your clients that are sort of, you know, shrinking and not doing it, you know, not, not very strong. You, you focus on where you see opportunities. But the trade that Britain is doing with the rest of the world is growing really rapidly. Mm. The trade we're doing with Europe is shrinking. So we should be focusing on the rest of the world where the opportunities are not focusing on, on Europe. Yes, of course, we want to carry on trading with Europe. Um, it's still a big market for us. But our trade with the US is bigger than any country we trade with in Europe, much bigger than Germany. Um, and we're, not only are we exporting more to the US now than Germany, we're even importing more from the US now than we are from Germany. That just happened. Uh, that was announced, I think, about a week ago. It's the first time it's ever happened. So our trade with the rest of the world is growing very fast, and that's really where we should be focusing our attention. And, of course, there are many big economies outside of Europe because I saw another uh, factlet the other day which suggested that the, Brit the British economy is the equivalent of something like 18 EU countries put together. So, you know, we are a massive uh, economy. We are the second biggest economy in Europe, one of the fifth biggest economy in the world. I really don't think there's going to be too much of a problem. Yeah, well, we always tend to have this uh, thing where we sort of do ourselves down and think we're incapable of anything. But actually, you know, we are a very strong country. And it's, you know, may maybe that's, uh, you know, maybe it's fantastic that we're all so modest. But uh, we, we, really are, we really are a great country and we have a thriving economy. We've got so much going for us. We know we, we have some great entrepreneurs, some great innovators, great on, you know, culture and fashion and technology and finance. You know, we're a great country and people around the world want to do business with us. The EU are really seriously panicked that we are leaving. They're, they are losing one of their major contributors 
And without us in there, the EU itself could fail. You know, if we do well outside the EU, which I think we will do, other countries in the EU will look at us and say, hey, look at Great Britain. Yeah. They're, they're not in the EU and they're doing well. Maybe we don't need to be in the EU anymore because the EU is causing huge problems right across Europe because of the single currency. You know, it's crazy. You know, you have 40% youth unemployment in Spain and Greece. Even in France, I think it's 30%. Italy hasn't grown for 10 years. The single currency is killing Europe. And so I think that once we leave, we might, we might see a whole lot of other European countries leaving too, and then it's game over for the EU itself. And that is what they're worried about. Yes, I think that's one of the many things they're worried about. Lance, thanks very much indeed. Lance Foreman, uh, MEP for the Brexit Party in London, of course. And uh, he's very much of the opinion uh, that the old withdrawal agreement, the Theresa May-inspired withdrawal agreement, needs to be uh, destroyed and just chucked in the bin. And nobody wants any part of it. So there's no point in saving any part of it. And Boris Johnson, I think, needs to come out and say that, doesn't he? 0344 499 1000. I want to hear from loads of you today because you are the voice of reason. This is the place to get your voice heard. We are, of course, Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Now, for those of you who have already been on holiday, you won't have to worry about uh, where you're going to go uh, until for a while, maybe the next few weeks, uh, maybe half term, maybe Christmas, maybe Easter, uh, but you will be going on holiday again. And right now, uh, you're going to want to listen to this because I'm actually about to go on holiday very shortly. Uh, and I'm delighted to say we're joined by Dr. Hilary Jones this morning, uh, who's got a fantastic story here for us about the most uh, expensive places uh, where you can uh, become ill and it can cost you an absolute fortune while you're Traveling. This is from Stay Sure. They've revealed a price index highlighting some of the most common ailments uh, that we all suffer from whilst we go away on holiday. Dr. Hillary, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thank you. Where are you going on holiday? I'm going to Portugal. Lovely. So um, I'm, a ho I'm hopeful that that's not terribly expensive if something bad <laughs> happens to me. There'll be some bad <laughs> fires there, haven't there, this, this year? <laughs> look out for the fires. Yeah, I, I will look out for the fires. Not as bad as Grand Canary, I suppose. But, no, uh, But you're talking here about everything from a tummy ache to typhoid to a heart attack. Mm. I mean, you know, obviously not something to be taken lightly, but, but it's an important point that people should know about because, of course, we've heard of terrible stories of people whose insurance didn't cover something. Yeah. You know, they weren't able to be flown home under their own steam. They had to pay extra for that, and the holiday companies don't always cover you either. Tell us, uh, tell us what you found. Well, it's good to be prepared, isn't it? And people fall ill here, and in just the same way people fall ill on holiday abroad. It can often be unpredictable. It can be you can be hit by a car full of your moped. You can get food poisoning, a chest infection, all kinds of things. And if you've got kids, um, earaches, uh, tonsillitis, insect stings and allergies, all sorts of things can crop up, and it's best to be covered with medical travel insurance. The problem is that a lot of people don't think about it, don't think they'll need it, and they're absolutely shocked when, it, uh, when they discover the cost of, of medical treatment mm. abroad. The most expensive country to fall Ill in is the US. Right. Um, they have a, um, a commercial approach to uh, medical care, and they'll often uh, try and extract your credit card under local anaesthetic from your wallet <laughs> before you uh, are even, uh, you know... Yeah, I mean, I go in. to America quite a lot, and there was a time when one of my kids was, was in the A&E for something or other for about four years in a row, you know. Mm. Oh, this is it. And, and you can get a bill for thousands of pounds. Yeah. 
In the NHS, we're not used to that. We don't hand over cash. For, we contribute to the NHS, but never hand over cash. But in other countries, you know, you will have to pay, and mm. and, and the and the price will the price will shock many people. For example, the average cost of say uh, you know a claim for uh, the commonest ailment, which was food poisoning, according to Stayshore's data, was uh, fifty uh, one thousand five hundred and eighty pounds, and mm. that's just the average. Right. So then you would have chest infections. Um, um, uh, tonsillitis, things like that. H- most expensive, a heart attack could set you back £8,100. Wow. Um, and then you could have another heart attack. Uh, exactly, exactly, adding insult to injury. But um, many things that um, you would take for granted, such as maybe just a, a, a broken arm or a broken leg, you're talking about um, £4,500. Right. And I mean, I, I don't know whether you can answer this question, but is it likely that if you're, say, going to a, a, a place where you're likely to be involved in, I don't know, I don't want to call it dangerous sports, but if you're going to decide that you're going to go water skiing or you're going to go off the mm. back of one of those banana uh, banana things that they tow around, which can seem to cause a lot of injuries, should you take out different insurance in terms of sort of if you're going to have an activity-based holiday? Yeah, you should read the small print. If, you, if you're doing uh, uh, pursuits which are, you know, adventure pursuits and, and involve some degree of risk, you normally have to declare that um, and it could uh, obviously be taken into account in your premium equally if <clears throat> if you're of an older age and uh, you've got pre-existing medical conditions it's really important that you declare what those pre-existing medical conditions are because if you don't according to new rules proposed by the financial conduct authority um, it could make your policy null and void right. it almost certainly will so you need to be honest about those pre-existing conditions not only for your own protection so if you're going on a cruise and you're, and you're three miles from land and you haven't declared that you've got angina and mm. something bad happens, then, you know, it's it's actually your own lookout. And yeah. you, you can't expect uh, an insurance company to fork out for something they didn't know that about. Somebody didn't know. Well, I was funny enough, I was going to ask you about cruise ships because obviously depending on which country you're near, mm. um, it may cost more money. But technically speaking, if you fall ill, uh, gastroenteritis is apparently the number one claimed for ailment. And I always one of the reasons I haven't ever been on a cruise is because I'm terrified of getting some kind of food poisoning that infects the whole ship, you know. <laughs> But um, how do they work that out in terms of, do they just literally go closest place that you are from the land, that's where you're going to get treated? Uh, usually, yes. I mean, t- two things I would say uh, about cruise ships. Firstly, is that the, the the incidence of norovirus and gastroenteritis is greatly exaggerated by the media. Mm. They're, they're no they're no they're no more prevalent uh, on cruise ships than anywhere else. Um, it, it's just that it tends to get publicity when yeah. it does happen. But anyone in close proximity, whether it's a care home, a hospital, or anywhere else, uh, just as vulnerable. Yes. Uh, no. It's, I think it's just the idea of floating yeah, about with and, a load of people who are being yeah, sick. And it just med- doesn't seem like a very nice holiday. No. Absolutely. And then their medical. <laughs> Facilities are second to none. They're yeah. absolutely fantastic. They put some of their IT units to shame, to be honest. Right. Uh, they're, they're incredible. But yeah, you, you, if you had something urgent, you'd have to be you'd have to be repatriated to the nearest uh, uh, suitable hospital and the nearest suitable. Um, country, mm. but that would cost an arm and a leg, literally tens of thousands of pounds for a chopper to land on deck and, and, and uh, evacuate yes. you. So if you haven't declared that, that you've got a pre-existing condition, you know, you, you're, you're asking for a lot of trouble. Mm. Um, and in a lot of places, I understand, you have to pay up front as well before you get the money back from the insurance company. Yeah, and, and people, are, you know, have to adopt desperate measures to phone home and, and, and raise the money mm. and, and, uh, and and get it sorted out uh, with, with the help of uh, probably your own embassy. Right. So I think it's good to be prepared. Um, it, it, it's good to read the small print, to find 
a specialist um, medical travel insurance policy, a company that will take you whatever your age, uh, provided you've um, listed your pre-existing medical condition, they come up with a policy for you um, which is affordable and covers you for any of those eventualities so you can still enjoy your holiday without worrying too much. Now, you know, we like to try and help people out on this show. We try and find solutions to things. Has anybody come up with a sort of a a phrase book which involves phrases which are medical? Because I know we've all (laughs) got got a phrase book that tells you how to ask for a pizza and how to ask for a beer. But how do you explain (laughs) to a doctor that you're suffering uh, from stomach problems? Well, well, indeed, there are certain things you can't mime very easily. Do you know what I mean? Um, Luckily, a a lot of doctors speak, uh, a lot of medical language is kind of universal yeah. uh, and a lot of doctors abroad will speak English but you can't really rely on that and communication can be a difficulty um, so if you've got a pre-existing condition it's a good idea to take a note from your doctor uh, explaining what you have and what your medication is right. and, and always have that in a, in a nice um, f- written form mm. so that you can give that to the doctor which will explain largely what you have and what you suffer from already. Okay well that's very very helpful stuff thank you very much indeed Dr Hilary Jones there uh, talking about the number of ailments that uh, afflict us all apparently uh, Spain is the place where most um, uh, claims are actually made from uh, because of course uh, the Mediterranean is the number one kind of hotspot. Uh, something like 34% of all claims in 2018 uh, came from uh, the Mediterranean so Greece as well of course, and Italy uh, as well. Uh, 10% of Stacia's claims originating uh, from the United States as well. Um, So if you are going abroad anywhere, and if you have had a problem and you want to tell us about it because you can share your experience, because one of the things, I've been to an awful lot of A&E departments in various different countries because for some reason, as I say, my kids are always having accidents or were when they were a lot younger. Not so much now, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, And quite often, once you find the hospital, actually, it's always very good. But sometimes even just finding the hospital can be a problem because trying to get directions late at night uh, in a relatively small town in Spain can sometimes be quite difficult. 0344 499 1000. We're going to go back to the phones because loads of you want to talk about Brexit. Loads of you want to talk about Boris Johnson uh, and the Angela Merkel meeting today. Let's go to Mary, uh, who is in Hemel Hempstead. Hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. Are you there? Mary's not there. No, I think Mary's disappeared. Never mind. Uh, We've got loads more coming up, nevertheless. We'll get some more of you on uh, as well because many of you do want to talk to us. Uh, My point before, uh, which we were talking to Lance Foreman from the Brexit Party about, was that basically we need somehow uh, to get an idea of precisely what it is that Boris Johnson is playing at Uh, There are those who believe uh, that he's not actually playing the game in the way that we want him to, that he's not actually entirely uh, being straight with us because he might be trying to resurrect in some way the uh, withdrawal agreement that Theresa May came up with. Let's talk to David, who wants to talk about travel insurance. Hi, David. Good morning, Mike. Morning, sir. What would you like to tell us? I'd just like to reiterate what what your guest was saying. About uh, six years ago, I went on holiday to to Florida with Uh a wife, and she... She got pneumonia while oh, we God. were out there. Blimey. We took her to um, A&E or whatever they call it. Yeah. And they, to be fair, they did give her immediate treatment, but it was only uh, it only took about 20 minutes before they wanted my credit card. Um, and they took a swipe of that to right. take £1,000. OK. And they also, even though this was the middle of the night, they wanted a fax um, from my insurers over here, confirming that more, more, my wife was covered. Yes, and that could be then, actually that can be quite problematic because you've got to get in touch with your insurers from absolutely. effectively so what is a payphone, right? It's all happening. She spent five days in hospital, right, as well as A and E treatment and various other stuff. It came to just under forty 
$1,000. Wow. And when we got back, um, the, uh, the insurance company went into every minute little uh, record of what we declared, right. and they discovered that she'd had cirrhosis in 1981. Right. Cirrhosis, which is a skin condition. Um, and they tried oh, psoriasis, to say, yeah. well, you, you didn't tell us about that. Right. So, um, what's that got, to do? What's that got to do with the price of fish, as they say? Ab- absolutely, but they will check everything. Mm. So when, when your guest said, make sure you tell them all the details of your medical history, yeah. you really have to, because they'll check on it. If and was this, a was this a one-off sort of travel insurance policy that you took out just for that trip? No, we had an annual policy, the pair of us, right. which was quite competitive. Mm. But now, if, if my wife wants a, a policy now, um, my goodness, we couldn't possibly afford. She has to take, I mean, a five-day one to the yeah. United States now costs her about £450. Oh, I mean, that's incredible, isn't because it? Because she and, claimed. Right. And what about when you actually finally left Florida? How much had you parted with personally before the insurance money came just, in? Just a thousand... Well, just a thousand pounds. OK. Um, they, the, once the insurance... Co- I mean, th- to be fair to the insurance company, two, three days, and they were on the ball. Yeah. They arranged accommodation for us. Uh, they arranged... Um, because she couldn't come home as soon as she left hospital... So they arranged for, as I say, accommodation, uh, the flights home, and a lovely guy in a black suit and a, a white shirt and a black tie and a nice jag to pick us up when we got back to Catwick. Oh, well, that's the, so. that's the important bit, right? Listen, brilliant. <laughs> David, thank you. Fantastic uh, piece of information there. It's very true that, uh, I mean, he says only £1,000, but for a lot of people, if you don't have the £1,000, that's a massive problem because you then have to try and beg, borrow and steal uh, £1,000 to pay for what they call in America the deductible uh, on whatever it is that happens to you. I had a similar problem in Mexico uh, when one of my kids... I think I'd just swallowed a load of horrible uh, swimming pool water, basically, uh, at a water park and had a kind of stomach upset for 24 hours, but was quite ill. Um, We went to the local nurse and they had the same situation. I had to try and phone my uh, insurance company and make sure that they could contact her, the doctor's office, to say that they were, in fact, my insurers. And that cost quite a lot of money just making the phone call from the room. You know, I think it was about a £55 phone call uh, because I was, of course, put on hold, had to wait, had to get the information, had to ring them back. Um, And in the end, fortunately... Um, and I don't know whether I should admit to this, after all of the trouble that we went through and nothing really, really happened and he recovered, uh, I went back to sort of settle the amount that ever, whatever we were supposed to pay and the doctor just went, oh, don't worry about it, forget about it. So uh, I obviously charmed her in some way or other and she didn't bother coming after me for the money, um, which was interesting because we'd had a row previously the last time I'd been in there because I said, I don't think... She was like, maybe you should take him to the hospital. And I'm like, I really don't want to take him to a hospital, an A&E department in Mexico uh, where people are coming in with severed heads and drug cartels are knocking about. I don't really think that's a great idea. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Independent Republic of Mike Graham, you know what to do. 0344-499-1000. Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock. Uh, he'll be taking you through all the way until four when Phil Williams is here uh, with the Drive Time show as well. Uh, lots of you also I'm going to be asking a question to before we go any further because a study has estimated that as many as 40 million unused gadgets are apparently languishing uh, in UK homes. So all your old mobile phones, uh, all your old laptops, all your old um, you know CD players, maybe old television you know, you need to get rid of this stuff. Don't hoard it because you can get money or you can donate it to charity. Do something with it so that it's not just sitting in a drawer, for heaven's sake. What is the point of having a Nokia uh, from 1998 or 1992 or anything like that? Uh, so I want to hear from you on that. You can tweet us as to what you found in your drawer uh, at Talk Radio. You can text us at 8722. Uh, that'll cost you um, 25p plus your normal sending rate starting message with the word talk. We're going to talk now though uh, to Greg Beals, Director of Campaigns at Shelter because a shocking uh, report came out this morning um, by the Children's Commissioner for England and um, it turns out that there may be, according to this report 210,000 children without a permanent home in England which is a pretty shocking statistic isn't it? Greg, uh, very good morning to you. This is uh, quite a remarkable number isn't it? Good morning. Yeah, look, I hope this is going to be a wake-up call to people because there's nothing inevitable about uh, the number of uh, children that are affected here, but it really does show you quite how drastic the effect of how we run our housing system is on the people that are affected at the sharp end, particularly children. Yeah, and incredibly, one of the stories is that in Ealing, uh, Ealing Council, um, they are using heavily modified, they say, shipping containers to house people. I mean, I don't know what heavily modified means. Does that mean they're putting windows in, uh, they're putting doors in, because normally none of those things would apply? Yeah, that's right. So we've got we've got examples here of shipping containers being used. We've got 
um, converted offices uh, with just very small spaces for a whole family. We've still got far too many children in bed and breakfast. Yeah. Now, many cases, bed and breakfast, children will be sharing a bathroom with... Uh, other adults who they don't know. Right. And the report also identifies 90,000 children sofa surfing. So with no fixed home, living with friends or family, with their families, but on sofas, on floors, on pull-outs. Uh, this is clearly no way in which a, a decent society raises its children. No, of course. And it's a sort of different definition of homelessness as well, really, isn't it? That's right. So, I mean, look, we're fortunate in this country that we don't have a system which means we end up with children on the streets. Yeah. But the consequence of not providing proper temporary or emergency accommodation is so many children in these awful situations. And the other thing in the report that really should be a wake-up call is the length of time people are spending in this situation. So, um, uh, you know, 6,000 children living like this for more than a year. Yeah, right. Is it going to be... If we went to the local councils, who I presume are responsible for housing uh, these families, if we went to them, would they tell us, well, we simply don't have the houses, we don't have the space? That's right. In the end, this is about an absence of houses. We used to, as a country, build something called social housing, yeah. council housing, housing associations. Because we're not building that anymore... We've got a waiting list of more than a million, just 6,000 new social homes last year. Because we're not building those homes these families have nowhere to go. We need three million new social homes over the next 20 years. If we do that, it will pay back as well because we save money. It's incredibly inefficient to be putting people up in this kind of temporary and emergency accommodation. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's obviously um, something that could be solved by the building or the availability or the, or the making available of more spaces, but that's not going to be something we can do overnight, is it? No, it takes time, although you could make a difference right now. I mean, the truth is the government built only 6,000 new social homes last year, but we could be building 20, 30, 40,000 from day one. Mm. I appreciate it takes some time to get up to hundreds of thousands, as Britain used to do. But we're alone in the world in being a country that doesn't invest properly in public housing. There's nothing inevitable about this. It is the outturn. This, this state of affairs with children in these situations is the outturn of a set of government policies that are not delivering an effective housing system. I thought there was already, in many places, um, a kind of rule that if you were a developer and you were building, say, for example, a selection of housing housing or a new estate somewhere that there had to be a certain sort of proportion of affordable housing in there as well yeah that's right so the, the trouble is that just so it's so easy for developers to get around those rules uh, if they can't make it profitable it allows them to opt out of it in many cases and then in other cases councils find it uh, hard to implement I mean, in the end there's no substitute for the government making We've got a government talking about investing in infrastructure, which is the right thing to do as a country. Part of that infrastructure must be investment in new social housing. Well, if they can stop uh, HS2, perhaps we can get some of that money uh, and they can start rebuilding houses along the route. In fact, they've, I think they've acquired a load of houses, so maybe they could use those and put people in them. Right. And the sums of money we're talking about are large, but they're not impossible. I mean, the, the money that's been made available for HS2 would go a long way to building hundreds of thousands of new social homes. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's, th this is a big challenge for the country, but it's a totally doable uh, thing to build these homes. We've done it before. We did it after the war. Yes, we did. And I think maybe that's the sort of mindset we need to get into. I mean, everybody gets very worked up when you say, oh, don't mention the war, you know, don't harken back to the war and all that. But actually, um, you know, when things needed to be done, they were done and nobody said, oh, well, we can't do that. They just get on with it. And I think that's kind of what we need here, isn't it, Craig? 
Well, we were, we were talking at that time as a country about homes fit for heroes. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I just can't see why it is not possible for us to, again, make the kind of investments that mean we've got a, a housing system that delivers for everybody, wherever you are in it, because so many of the people at the sharp end of that housing system are children, as you can see in this report. Absolutely right. Well, let's see if we can do something about it. Greg, thanks very much indeed. Greg Beals, our Director of Campaigns uh, at Shelter. The astonishing story. You know, when you first see this, the word homelessness, you think of people sleeping on the street. You think of people living by railway stations, sleeping, you know, in, in cardboard boxes in Tottenham Court Road in the centre of towns, in the centre of cities. This is not about that. This is about people who just do not have a permanent home. And surely uh, we are a good enough country to make sure that everybody does have one of those, no matter where uh, they're living. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Looking to see what you have uh, in your uh, bottom drawer or your top drawer or wherever you keep stuff because uh, an awful lot of uh, gadgets are being stored and hoarded uh, back in uh, uh, the house that you live in. Uh, maybe an old house that you lived in. Peter says, back in the 80s, I had a business selling cell phones. They were two manufacturers of handheld phones at the time, Motorola and Mobira, as Nokia used to be called. I had to have one of each, £1,800 per phone but people paid for them. Happy days. Well, I remember uh, when the first person actually that I ever saw uh, with a car phone, and he was the editor of a newspaper I was working for, and the car phone came out of the car uh, and also went into a kind of a huge um, uh, attaché case, and it was worth something like £2,000, this phone, and it was hopeless. You couldn't use it anywhere. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's talk to Clive Betts, uh, who is the MP behind, as we said earlier, uh, the idea that we should be looking at raising council tax in this country. Clive, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Yes, thanks, very, thanks very much indeed for joining us. We spoke earlier uh, to somebody from the LGA, Councillor Peter Fleming from Sevenoaks, and he was talking very much in support of what you've been saying about um, the need for more money to be sort of shoved through the system. Not a great deal of enthusiasm for it, I'd have to say, from, from our listeners thus far. Have you got a plan as to how much money we're talking about? Well, first of all, what we're saying is that government needs to provide a lot more, lot more money for local councils because... The cuts that government have made in the name of austerity since 2010 have fallen most heavily on local councils. They've had bigger cuts than any other part of the public sector. So uh, that's the first thing we're calling for, is, is, a, is a major boost to councils yes. from government as part of the spending review. But then we've also said, look, the, the, the taxation system at local level that councils uh, raise through council tax is massively out of date. Uh, the, the, the values of houses that are now... Uh, in the system, uh, go back to 1991, um, and there's been no change since. Indeed, when the new house is built, uh, you don't look at its value now, you look at what it would have been worth if it had been built in 1991. Now, that clearly is a nonsense, and you can't carry on running that sort of system uh, indefinitely. So we've called for that to be changed. Yes, and there have been uh, calls for that yeah. to be changed before, haven't there? I mean, it seems incredible yeah. that in this day and age, that has not been updated since the 90s. It seems, it, it, I mean, it's hard it, it, to it believe, incredible. isn't it? And, uh, yes, it is. And that needn't necessarily, as uh, we're saying, uh, raise more money of itself. It just needs to make more sense out of the system. Yeah. Uh, and it can be done like, uh, like, like any taxation system. It can be updated. 
and valuations can be changed without changing the overall amount of money that's collected. Yes, I mean, one of the things that's been, that's been raised by many people uh, who sent yeah. me tweets since we spoke to Peter Fleming is that, you know, there are quite a lot still of very highly paid chief executives in our councils, quite a lot of quite yeah. highly paid people, over six figures, salaried uh, individuals who are running things. Now, you might say to me, well, you know, that's commensurate with what they would get in the private sector yeah. and all of that. But, that's you know, a lot, there lot is... less than they get in the private sector. Well, there's a, there's a, a lot a, less. But there is a perception, Clive, that, that, that yeah. there is a bit of fat cattery going on. Do you know what I mean? No, I, I, I mean, there, there may be individual council officers whose salary you can question, but I think overall, if you compare the salary of local government officers with the salary, say, of companies that come in to do outsourcing work for councils when, when say, their services are transferred over to a private company, then it's quite likely, almost certain, that the executives at the top of those private companies will earn a lot more than the executives in councils. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is un unfortunately one of those things that you have to, I suppose, try and win the public over. But in terms of an actual, say, um, going to, back to the, the public well, if you, if you like, yeah. I mean, is there a, fee a figure that you could put a percentage, perhaps, or, or is there a sort of certain elastic number that you can give us that you would say, well, we could put it up by this amount? Well, uh, I, I, what we're saying at this stage is that certainly central government needs to provide about £5 billion extra to local councils across the country in order to, to start putting right some of the major cuts that have happened uh, to services. And I understand the frustration of the public because councils have had a, a much smaller cake uh, to, 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 to deal with because of central government cuts in grants. That cake then uh, has increasingly got been spent, if you like, gone towards the uh, care services for, for, for adults because of the great number of elderly people needing care, for children who need care, and also for people with disabilities. So as more of the total cake is spent on those services, what's left for very important things like libraries, like leisure, like highways, buses, uh, you know, public health services, are all being cut uh, by 50%, up to 50%. Now, they're the services very often that the public get receive. The people who pay their council tax pay more, yet they're getting less in terms of those important services. Sure. And that's something that's got to change. Yeah, don't you think there's an argument that can be made, and I've made this one before, Clive, about moving sort of social care away from local councils, not because they can't do it properly, but just because it's such a big area and such an unwieldy kind of problem, which is only going to get bigger and more expensive, that it might be unfair to expect the local councils to be able to, to administer it. And wouldn't it be better to maybe... Set, I know that this is probably anathema to more people than setting up another government department, but, you know, separate making somebody else responsible for it? No, I, I, I'd be very much opposed to that. And I think all the evidence we have was when in previous inquiries that that's uh, not the way forward because that simply centralises an issue. It doesn't deal with the fundamental problem uh, of lack of resources. Uh, and w when we look at the, the needs, that they are very local, they're very personal to people. And I think uh, that councils, based in the community, uh, are, are better uh, placed to deal with those issues. And let me just say as well that the majority of people that get social care get it in their own homes. Uh, and, and housing services are an important part of that. If an elderly person needs care, they probably need uh, help with, uh, you know, handrails on the stairs, uh, with bathing facilities. Uh, maybe even with a different sort of home to move into, more, more suitable to their needs. So, so housing and social care go so far hand in hand 
that if you centralise social care at a national level, but still have housing at a local level, then you're going to get a disjuncture between those two services, okay. which will really be disadvantageous to people. OK. Clive, thanks very much indeed. Clive Betts, the Chair of the Communities and Local Government Committee. I've got a tweet here from Simon. He says, my council tax went up £150 this year. How can they justify it? Uh, shocking. And then they want another £35 a year to empty our green bin. Let's talk to Marie, who's up in Castleford. Hi, Marie. Hi, good, ma oh, good afternoon. I'm Hi. sorry, Mike. That's Thanks okay. for taking my call. I live in um, Yvette Cooper, the lovely Yvette Cooper's constituency, and I've just had to ring you about this council tax. I just wish you and your research team could come and see the constituency of Yvette Cooper. Yeah. We had, um, within, a say, a 10-minute walk for children, for example, we had a local swimming pool, we had a putting green, so which was like a mini golf. Right. We had um, a park, we had um, an A&E department, uh, all been closed, everything's been closed down, we've got nothing. The local swimming pool is just all overgrown. I'm not kidding, Mike, there must be five foot weeds all over it. It was oh, a, shocking, isn't it? A, a playing field, yeah, what a local football team used, which they can no longer use. And honestly, the austerity... It's just such a load of rubbish. There's been so much money wasted in our constituency. I've just been trying to look up to research the salaries that they're on and the expenditure. I think it's over £1,000 a month that yeah. the councillors are claiming in expenditure every month. Oh, well, um, I mean, the actual individual councillors, yeah, absolutely. They're allowed to claim that, um, uh, even though they don't perhaps take much of a salary. But what I know from when I was working up in Edinburgh and a lot of other big cities are the same. The, the chief executive of the council was on about half a million quid a year. Oh, absolutely. They're on more than the Prime Minister. Ours is up here, yeah. Ours is. I mean, I do agree, Mike. I think it would be a great thing if they did the rebranding of them because there are a lot of big houses in Castleford where I live that have never been rebranded. Right. And I live in an apartment and I pay more in... I'm a higher council tax bracket than a lot of very big houses, you know, with a lot of mm. bedrooms. And I live in a one-and-a-half-bedroom apartment. And there are four- and five-bedroomed big houses in Castleford that are paying a lot less in council tax than I am. But, I mean, she's even closed down our local A&E. We've got nothing at yeah. all. So that chat that you've just had on saying that the resources have gone to other areas, I'm really sorry, but that's just not the case. Yeah. You can't just say it, you know, generically about every part of the country. Some councils, maybe that is the case, but certainly not up here in good old Yvette Cooper's constituency. It's gone to the wall. It's terrible. I think that's happened in a lot of parts of the country, Marie. Thanks very much indeed for your call. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.